you have your Bibles, open them to the book of Job. The book of Job. We're going to be looking at fundamentally chapters 1 and, and 2 here today. We'll be referencing uh, all aspects of the book, just about Job chapter 1. Job is the first of five poetry books in the Old Testament. It's followed by Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and the Song of Solomon. They're often called the wisdom books, and that's a, an apt name because the wisdom books present every imaginable thing that could happen to, to a person and every human reaction and, and response and emotion. And, and, and yes, it contains wise guidance, so we can learn so much, we can draw so much from the pages of, of the wisdom writings as we deal with our own circumstances as difficult as they might be as we address the great questions with which life confronts us. When we look at Job, we, we, we find every dark emotion of the human experience, suffering, heartache, misery, depression, doubt. We hear the cry of, of a suffering man's spirit. We can visualize, if we immerse ourselves in this book, we can visualize the profound agony of a man who is desperately struggling to trust in God. A man who's desperately trying to hold on to his faith in God, even as his known world crashes around him. Beloved, you and I were created to know God and to trust God. So when suffering becomes overwhelming, when our life becomes pointless, when things become hopelessly confused, it is in those times that our only hope, our only hope is to hold fast to God in faith. And it's true, we open the book of Job, we, we find ourselves in the midst of heartache and trials we can do that, and when we're at the end of our rope and we're crying out, Why me, Lord? We can open the book of Job, and there we're going to find a man who has endured loss and sorrow that is beyond our imagination. I'm going to read uh, uh, from verse 1 of chapter 1 through verse 10 of chapter 2, and it's such a long reading. I'm going to ask you if you just remain seated for the first part of that, if you would. Uh, despite, I know some of you are going to want to stand up. Just stay seated if you would, and then I'm going to ask you to stand up uh, toward the end. Beginning in verse 1, if you have your Bibles, look there. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. That man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? 
Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand, only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and there came a messenger to Dove and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in the oldest brother's house, and behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they were dead and I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my, father's, my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Would you please stand? Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life, but stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head and he took a piece of broken pottery from which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes then his wife said to him do you still hold fast your integrity curse God and die but he said to her you speak as one of the foolish women would speak shall we receive good from God and shall we not also receive evil and all this Job did not sin with his lips would you pray with me? Father, we have heard this story so many times, and uh, we pray for a freshness of your spirit to penetrate our hearts and minds this morning and, and remind us of truths long held, long learned. Uh, Father, give us a fresh 
vigor to apply what we learned today and perhaps even reveal to us uh, truths that, we're, that we've yet to learn. Father, we need your Holy Spirit to do that, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. The first council of Nicaea, convened by the Emperor Constantine in 325 A.D., was the first worldwide conference of the Christian church. At this council, many of the great doctrinal matters of Christianity were settled for all time, such as the, the deity of Christ. It was there that a, something called the Nicene Creed, it's an orthodox creed of orthodox faith that still is recited in churches today. It is still recited. It was adopted at that convention. And the Nicene Creed is the only document after the Bible that has been officially approved by the whole church. And I'm not going to take the time to read it to you today, but if I did, there, there, you would find nothing with, within the words to disagree. But as critical as what it says is who put it together. Who meant to draw it up? That's the relevant point for us in light of our subject matter of suffering. You see, of the 318 delegates to the first Nicene Council, only 12 of the 318 were whole in body. All the rest had been maimed or crippled as a result of being tortured for their faith. Some had lost an eye or a hand. Others had suffered broken or dislocated limbs. Some had been scarred by branding irons. And we find that just unconscionable today. We can't imagine somebody going through that. But in the early days of the church, no one thought it was particularly strange or unfair to suffer for their faith. Suffering was considered a, a, a normal part of Christianity. It was expected. Most of us American Christians have grown up feeling entitled to a life of ease and comfort and prosperity. When suffering comes into our lives, there's a tendency to cry out in protest against it and, and the unfairness of it all. But when we read aloud the martyrdom of the, of the great Christian saints of the past, we, we often find a more mature and accepting view of suffering. For example, Oswald Chambers, the great 19th century Christian writer from Scotland, observed, Suffering is the heritage of the bad, of the penitent, and of the Son of God. Each one ends in the cross. The bad thief is crucified, the penitent thief is crucified, and the Son of God is crucified. By these signs, we know the widespread heritage of suffering. In the book that is his namesake, we see this heritage shared by uh, uh, an ancient, a man of the ancient Middle East, a righteous and godly man, but we find also there a man who questions God, a man who seeks answers from God, a man who becomes angry with God even. But most importantly, we see a man who remains faithful to God in the midst of it all. The book of Job is thought by many scholars to be the oldest book in the Bible, older even than Genesis. Its, its author is unknown, perhaps Moses himself, perhaps Job, perhaps Elihu, perhaps Solomon. One thing is certain, this, this book was given by God the Holy Spirit, and as such is it, author, it is authoritative for our lives, and it's able to inspire us and comfort us and teach us. 
The opening verses of the book tell us that Job lived in the land of Uz. Now, we don't know exactly where that is, somewhere just east of Israel in present-day Syria or northeast Saudi Arabia, maybe even in western Iraq. We don't know exactly. We know that he was one of the most well-known and wealthy citizens of the land. There are extra-biblical references to a man named Job, been found on ancient tablets that are thought to be around 4,000 years old. Job probably lived in the same historical era as Abraham, around 2000 B.C. M. Scott Peck begins his bestseller, The Road Less Traveled, with these simple, indisputable words. Life is difficult. Say, life is difficult. Just a few years ago, I thought I had already gone through the most difficult suffering that I would probably have to endure in my life. That was one of the bright things. Maybe every, all the really bad stuff is behind me. Having grown up with the realization that my father didn't love my mother or me enough to stick around and be the husband and the father we needed. The tragic and premature death of my best friend, Stephen, Vicky's brother, Evelyn's son. Uh, the loss of, of the grandmother who practically raised me, a stepfather who was a highly abusive alcoholic, my mother taking her own life at the age of 59. I thought I'd gone through it all. But when we lost our daughter, Courtney, in 2008, and then seven years later, our son, Chris, in 2015, grief took a whole different new meaning in our lives. But i got to tell you, through what God has permitted us to experience, the Word has become real to us. I can testify. I can testify that God is always faithful. God always answers prayers. And He always has a wonderful purpose in mind. Many of you here today have experienced great trials and great grief. And as we study Job as we try to grasp the message of how these times in the furnace help us, know this, we are not alone and we don't have to be afraid. Say we're not alone and we don't have to be afraid. We can cry out with Job, but he knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. As we study the book of Job together, I trust two things will be accomplished in our lives. We will learn how to be patient with our own trials, and we will learn how to help others in their trials. Our world is, is filled with people who need encouragement, people who need consolation, people who need discipling. We say, a church, we say we're a church that makes disciples. People need us for that. They need you. They need me. And you can be sure that God is always about preparing you and me to serve others. One of my duties as your pastor is to preach and pray in such a way that you are prepared in mind and heart not to curse God in the day of your calamity. But even more, instead of cursing, you might worship God in His sovereignty. You might praise Him for the grace and mercy He offers us as His children, regardless of how deep the grief or great the pain that comes into your life, that others would see your faith and be encouraged in their own walk all to the end that our God might be glorified. Virtually everyone in this sanctuary will, if you've not already done so, experience overwhelming difficulty, tragedy, and trial. 
and you can mark it down right now. It will come unexpectedly, and it will almost certainly leave you searching for meaning and questioning the fairness of it all. You may be awakened by a way-too-early knock on your door and be forced to hear dreaded news from a police officer. You may be showering and singing a hymn when you feel the lump on your neck or breast. You may be sleeping soundly only to be suddenly awakened by the ring of the phone and you're forced to deal with a situation that you've seen happen to others often, but now it's happening to you. And suddenly, submerged in shock, you will cry out, Why? Why? Why, God? A thousand times before the waters subside. And that's because most of the time, our grief and pain does not come as understandable punishment for our sins. Most of the time, it comes out of the blue and baffles, totally baffles our sense of justice. That's part of the reason the book of Job is so powerfully relevant for us. Job's suffering seems to come out of nowhere. Remember, he doesn't have the advantage that we do. He didn't sit in on the conversation between God and Satan. His suffering doesn't have any connection with his character. One of the purposes of the book of Job is to give us some help in living through the trials that come our way in life. And not just so we can keep our head above water, but so that we can worship God and praise God for His goodness in the midst of our trials and thereby give God great glory. By the way, we're introduced to Job and his character. In verse 1, he was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Beloved, if suffering is intended as punishment for evil, as so many, that was the prevalent belief in his day, that philosophy did not apply to Job. He avoided evil, the text says us, because he feared God. He pursued what was good and right. He avoided sin. His reputation was blameless, and everything he did was guided by his devotion to God. Verses 2 and 3 detail for us the many blessings that God poured out on Job. We learned that he had seven sons and three daughters, huge flock of sheep, right? Camels, oxen, and donkeys, large number of servants. Verse 3 tells us he was the greatest of all the people in the East. Verses 4 and 5 give us some insight into some of his faith practices. Every time his sons and daughters would throw a party, Job would rise the next morning and offer burnt offerings for each one, just in case any of them had sinned or cursed God in their heart. Which tells us, which tells us that, that Job took very seriously the honoring of God's name. That it mattered to him that God's name not be profaned. He took seriously his role as the spiritual leader of the family. This was in a time before the priesthood, got to remember. Bottom line, Job was just a good, godly man. Then the catastrophe came. Look at verse 13 with me. His children were having another one of their parties. It was a feast. They were all together. Remember, Job had ten children gathered together at the home of the oldest brother. Verses 14 and 15, we see a messenger comes to Job and tells him that the Sabaeans had struck and stolen all of his donkeys and oxen, not to mention killed all the servants who were tending them. Before he can gather his wits, another messenger, verse 16, comes along, tells him the fire of God has fallen and destroyed all the sheep and the servants with them. 
Then still another messenger, verse 17, arrives and tells Job some Chaldeans had come and run off all his camels and killed the servants that had been watching over them. And if all that's not enough, verse 18 and 19, a final messenger arrives to tell him that his children were crushed to death as a great wind swept across the desert and collapsed the house upon them. And one day, Job was stripped of all of his wealth and all of his children were killed. King Solomon was right. Time and chance happen to them all, for man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. Job knew what had happened. He just didn't know why it had happened. And that's the heart of the matter, is it not? And in the opening scenes of Job, we're given some, some background that explain Job's drama, stuff Job doesn't know. And we see there the first hint of an answer to that question, why, why suffering? And we see Satan issue this mocking challenge to God, and we learn that senseless suffering comes as a result of Satan's rebellion against the reign and the rule of God. We see God meeting with his holy angels, and we read in verse 6, Satan also came among them. He tells God that he's been traveling around the earth. He's returned from that journey. And I'll paraphrase, paraphrase it here. Human beings only love you out of self-interest because you bless them. Take those blessings away and they will curse you to your face. So God replies, very well, let's test your theory. Let's let a righteous man named Job be the proving ground. Now, here was a man who was just living his life, right? Ten kids, wealthy beyond imagination completely unaware that he had suddenly become the center of God's attention, not to mention the center of Satan's attention. His life was about to become this tactical battlefield between these cosmic forces, God and Satan. The soul of Job was about to become this battleground as Satan was about to launch his first major assault. Because the author allows us to, to visit the throne room of heaven and hear God and Satan speak we know who caused the destruction, and we know why he was allowed to cause it. But what if we did not have this insight, beloved? What if we didn't know what we know? Might we take the same approach as Job's friends? Dare I say, even as Job's wife? Everything Job owns and cares about except his wife and friends is gone in one afternoon. What in the world is going on here? And to see what's going on here, we have to look outside the world. The world alone never has the answers to the great questions of life. The answers are found in heaven. So the writer gives us a glimpse into heaven to help us understand what is happening on earth. Verses 6 through 12 describe that meeting between God and Satan. In verse 7, Satan says he spends his time going to and fro on earth. God points out Job, obviously very delighted in Job. Had you considered my servant Job? One writer said, one writer said, this was like a jewelry store owner. He's closed up, he's, he's turned off the lights, locked the doors. He goes to the back room, and there's a jewel thief. There's a thief back there looking over some of the stuff he has in the back. And the owner says, What are you doing? And the thief says, Well, I'm just walking around in your store. And then the owner says, well, have you seen that big, expensive, beautiful diamond that we have up front? Kind of like that. Now, we can rule out the possibility that God's pride got the better of him 
We say we can rule out the possibility that he made a mistake. Didn't do that. So it leaves us with one alternative. He's setting Job up for a great test. He is divinely proud of Job. Job's fear of God, his commitment, his devotion to turn away from evil have deeply endured Job to God. When, when, and God to Job. When, when God asks Satan if he's noticed Job, he commends Job for the same qualities that were introduced in the opening verse. He's a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Beloved, God has not given up on the world that he's created and he will not give up on this world that he has created. Even if one person remains faithful to his purpose in creation. One writer has said, While the God of Job is sovereign over all the earth, he is not so distant that he does not govern, not so powerful that he does not allow freedom, and not so independent that he does not care. God rejoices in a man like Job. But Satan's not impressed. Verse 9, he implies that Job's not such a great example of reverence for God. He says the only reason that, that Job loves you is because you prospered him. You, you've made him a wealthy man. See, Satan knows nothing about righteousness for righteousness' sake, springing from a good heart, a heart devoted to God, from genuine love. To him, every human act can be explained with a selfish motive. So Job, in effect, puts... Puts, excuse me, Satan, in effect, puts Job's righteousness on one side of the scale and God's prosperity of blessings on the other side of the scale. And he says, take away the blessings and Job's righteousness will not only disappear, but it'll turn to resentment. It'll turn to hatred. Now, when you get right down to it, what Satan is doing is not only calling Job's righteousness into question he's calling God's character into question Satan attacks Job's righteousness as false but he attacks God's character as flawed he's concluding this he's concluding that, that God needs Job to love him and so God protects and prospers Job so that he will love him and if Job is right God is not sovereign so Satan says to God in verse 11, allow me to paraphrase again, every man has his price. Job can raise another family and start another business because he still has his health and his strength. Let me touch his body and take away his health, and you'll soon hear him curse you face to face. God could have said, I don't need to do anything to prove anything to you or anybody else. I, I know Job, I know his heart, and that's enough for me. He could have done that, but in this case he didn't. God has full confidence in Job, and he accepts Satan's challenge, not as an impulsive dare, not because his character's been impugned, but because he's, he's once again willing to, to give man the choice to choose good or to choose evil, and thereby love or reject him. One writer said, In Job, mankind will walk away with Adam from the Garden of Eden toward the Garden of Gethsemane, where Christ himself will suffer. In both cases, God's purpose is redemption. But we need to see the great truth that resonates through God's response to Satan's cynical challenge. God does not go along with Satan's suggestion that he, that he stretch out his hand over Job and, and touch all that he has. Listen, God does not do evil. 
God in His sovereignty draws the boundaries by which evil may work in our world. And to some, I know this seems like a contradiction because it implies that God could simply eradicate all evil if He wanted to. And again, we're forced back. We're forced back to the fundamental truth that God has chosen to give man freedom within His nature. Knowing that man will often make decisions bringing sin and the consequences of sin upon himself and, and upon creation, upon those around him. And to preserve that choice, God permits evil within limits until that day, that great and terrible day of judgment when the earth will forever be freed from its suffering. And beloved, this is good news for us. Good news even in the face of the reality of sin and its consequences. Job responds with a reverence that's rooted in the wonder and worthiness he sees for God, he sees in God for who God is in and of himself. And for God, the revelation of this truth to man, to you and me, is so important that he's willing to allow his favorite, his, his devoted servant, Job, to experience this great grief and abject poverty in order to make it known. But in verses 20 and 21, we see the victory. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We've heard those words before, right? We've heard them at the graveside of a loved one. But this, this, this ritual of resignation that, that Job offers is one that must be balanced by the promise of the resurrection. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Beloved, we must not make the, the mistake of, of only prescribing Job's words for the funeral of a loved one. If we do that, we, we miss the spirit with which he spoke. On a day of, of great and catastrophic loss, Satan's wiped out everything that he has on earth, from his oxen to his children. Job, get this now, Job worshipped God and thanked Him for His blessings. Here we see that tragedy reveals the spirit of a man. The Russian writer Alexander Solzhenitsyn, he understood the fullest implications of that idea. That point was driven home to him following long years of suffering and solitude in a Russian gulag, price he paid for writing in opposition to his government. Here's what he wrote. It was only when I lay on rotting prison straw that I sensed within myself the first stirrings of good. Gradually it was disclosed to me that the line separating good and evil passes not through states, not between classes, nor between political parties, but right through the human heart and through all human hearts. So bless you, prison, he wrote, for having been in my life. Beloved, can you and I say, bless my prison about our deepest trials and tragedies? Can we, can we bless the prisons that, that loom in the dark around the curve in the road ahead of us? It takes a, a deep spiritual 
wisdom to cultivate that ability, a profound faith that God loves you, God really loves you, and he does have good purposes for you and for your life. Satan was proved to be wrong. Job did not curse God when he lost his wealth and his children. He worshiped God, he blessed God, and the greater worth of God became unmistakably clear. So one of the purposes of God allowing Job to experience all that he experienced was fulfilled, the revelation of the worthiness of God. Say he's worthy to be worshipped. But just as Job's recovering from this, this shock of, of losing his wealth and his children, he contracts this horrible disease. Verses 7 and 8 in chapter 2, we read that he was afflicted with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat among the ashes. If we look ahead to verse 7 of Job, chapter, chapter 7, verse 5, excuse me. We see that Job was covered with these boil-like sores that opened, and they got dirty, and they got infected, and they were infested with worms. So we're not talking about some kind of little skin rash here. We're not talking about a mild case of measles. It was a miserable affliction that ranged from the top of his head to the soles of his feet. It cannot be what we expect to happen to Job after he responded to the first trial, the loss of his property and his children. Remember, he worshiped God in his loss. So we're left asking ourselves once again, what in the world is going on here? And again, the answer is not found in the world. It's found in heaven. Back up to verse 6. We see the Lord has once again brought Job to the attention of Satan. Verse 3, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth? a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. So again, we see Satan challenging the genuineness of Job's reverence. He says that Job is only faithful, Job is only righteous, because God has protected his health. Verse 4, skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. So again, God's worthiness is brought into question. Is Job in love with God just because he's God? Or is Job in love with God because he appreciates the blessings and the prosperity, particularly health, that God can provide? And Job's already demonstrated very clearly that God is more valuable to him than, than possessions and even family. But what about health? So, so to show Job's love and reverence are genuine, God allows his, spirit, his servant to experience the hand of Now, if not only after all that she's occurred, you can imagine, she is a broken and bitter woman. She's reached the breaking point and really beyond it. Her faith has been shattered because of all these attacks against Job. But you've got to remember, she lost wealth too. She lost ten children as well. In her own pain, in her own... She sees her own suffering. She can't see through it to God. And Job's suffering, she can't see it. But God's word is not to be trusted. And now as Job's very life is fading before her eyes... She's lost hope. Her faith evaporates. She says to her husband, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. I could just imagine 
a smile creeping across the face of Satan as she uttered those words. And notice this. What Job's wife wants him to do is exactly what Satan is trying to get Job to do. Curse God and die. Clearly, Satan is using Job's wife as an, as an instrument against Job, just like Satan used Eve as an instrument against Adam in the Garden of Eden. I'm not saying that, that here that, that Eve and, and Job's wife were possessed by the devil, but these two women did permit themselves to be used by Satan when they yielded to the temptation to disobey God. What two things is Satan saying to Job about through Job's wife? First, Satan urges Job to give up his faith, become an apostate, give up on God, become an enemy of God, curse God, she says. Second, Satan urges Job to commit suicide, curse God and die, she says. So Satan, through Job's wife, clearly suggests to Job that it would be better for everybody, better for him, to just, if he wasn't even here, just take your own life and, and don't live anymore. Job's already drowning in pain. He's got this disfiguring disease, remember? He's, he's, he's this colossal disgrace before the people of his community. And now his wife's just piling on, right? His suffering deepens as he's emotionally abused and spiritually abandoned by his own wife. Let me speak to the wives here for just a moment. Sisters, do you fully understand how much your husband depends on you for his emotional and mental and spiritual well-being. Let me ask you again. Do you fully understand, wives, how much your husband depends on you for his emotional, mental, and spiritual well-being? Husbands typically draw much more emotional and spiritual strength from their wives than either they or their wives realize. So, so if you're ever tempted to, to say something that might wound your husband, or make him feel abandoned, or emasculate him, that he might feel rejected. Remember Job and his wife. Remember, Job's wife was doing the bidding of Satan and carrying out his plan. And as husbands and wives, we owe it to our spouses and to God to make sure that everything we say to each other edifies the other and serves to further God's plan, not Satan's. What Job says next brings home the glorious and awesome victory of Job's faith. Verse 10. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak, so shall we receive good at the hand of God, and shall we not receive evil? Beloved, God is sovereign in all things. Amen? God is on His throne in heaven. The angels do His will and report to Him. And even Satan can do nothing to God's people without God's permission. He is Almighty. The Almighty is one of the key names for God in Job. It's mentioned 31 times. So from the, from the outset, the writer reminds us, no matter what happens in this world, no matter what happens in our lives, despite the loss or the pain or, or, or the, the, the discomfort, God is on His throne and everything is in control. And Job gets this. He gets this because... His unshakable faith in the sovereignty of God will not let go, and neither should we let go. Imagine this picture with me. 
picture Satan in heaven surrounded by 10,000 angels waiting to hear how Job's going to respond. And then Job responds, and, and though he's unaware, 20,000 arms or wings, if it, as it were, were raised, and, and these 10,000 mighty voices cry out, Worthy is the God of Job! At that moment, we can just imagine Satan slinking off, scurrying away from the presence and the praise of God. To wrap up, there are several important implications for us as believers that we need to take away from our time and this part of Job's story today. And the first one is that we should join with Job and affirm with all our hearts the absolute sovereignty of God. We should join with Job and affirm with all our hearts the absolute sovereignty of God. Let us echo the words of the psalmist. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. Let us say with Daniel, He does according to His will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay His hand or say to Him, What have you done? Let us make the absolute sovereignty of God the rock on which we build our lives and the rock upon which we build this church. Number two, we should let our tears flow freely when catastrophes come. Job rose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground. The sobs of Job in the midst of the sorrow and the pain were not a sign of unbelief. Job, Job doesn't know anything about this hypocritical, shallow, or just praise the Lord anyhow in response to whatever comes along. The awesome thing about Job's worship is that it was in the midst of his grief, not a replacement for his grief. So when your catastrophe comes, allow your tears to flow without restraint. And more than that, allow the rest of us to weep with you and enjoy that blessing. And then third, have faith that God is good and allow Him to be the treasure of your heart and the joy of your life. Even Listen, even if God had allowed Satan to take Job's life, I don't have any problem imagining what Job's response would have been. I can easily imagine his final words with his final breath being something like, the steadfast love of the Lord is better than life. Elizabeth Elliot writes, if you don't know much about Elizabeth Elliot, Google it. Great story. Just uh, many, many good books. This comes from one of them. There have been some hard things in my life, she writes. Of course, as there have been in yours, and I cannot say to you, I know exactly what you're going through, but I can say, I know the one who does know. And I've come to see that it's through the deepest suffering that God has taught me the deepest lessons. lessons. And if we'll trust Him for it, we can come through to the unshakable assurance that He's in charge. There's sovereignty again. He has a loving purpose. And He can transform something terrible into something wonderful. She says, suffering is never for nothing. Listen, believer. Remember, remember when you're walking through the valley of, of sorrow and tears? God is walking beside you. He's walking beside you. When you pass through the fire, He draws close to you to shield you from the flames. 
When you wade through the flood, He's nearby to, to keep you buoyant, to keep your head above the water. In the storm or in the earthquake or in the midst of any disaster threatening to engulf you, that's the time, beloved, when you feel the presence of God like never before. Because you see, God is closest in the crises, surrounding us with His presence. He's promised that He would do that for us. He's promised, I will never leave you or forsake you. Beloved, our Father always keeps His promises. Would you pray with me? Father, we confess that, that there are times when difficult, grievous things come our way and, and we find it virtually impossible not to get mired down in bitterness and sorrow and find ourselves unable to see you through the cloud of our circumstances. We recognize that's our shortcoming, that's our failing you've not moved away that you were there you were greater than the cloud of adversity and you're using it to conform us to the image of your son Jesus Christ you're using it to prepare us for ministries that lie ahead so Father we pray for the grace the spiritual maturity the faith to be those who are unwavering in the midst of calamity who shine brighter in the face of tragedy and suffering who shine with the light that you've given us in your son Jesus Christ and now Father as we prepare in a few moments to have the Lord's Supper together I want to give folks just an opportunity to respond Lord I pray you'll speak to hearts you're the only one that can do that. There's no one gifted enough in oratory to move people's hearts truly. Your spirit must do that work, and I pray today you will with whatever decision that needs to be made. Uh, we take the opportunity to open up our service for invitation and allow people to respond. I pray those who feel the moving of your Holy Spirit will do so. And we pray this in Jesus' name.